Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. Our compulsory third-party team is passionate about all things CTP. They have extensive knowledge of the complexities of CTP cases and have seen everything from a heated liability dispute, an alternative blameless accident allegation, a nuanced causation issue, and an economic loss claim with family trusts and an offshore bank account, and even a claim for replacement care for the family budgie. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Thanks for tuning into the Proper Lookout podcast. This week, we'll be presenting a Q&A session on contributory negligence following on from the recent release of McCabe Kerwood's Mostly at Fault Guidelines and Contributory Negligence Summaries. My name is James Kang, Associate in McCabe Kerwood's Statutory Insurance Group, and here with me today is Eden Christopher, who is also an Associate in our team. Now, Eden, before we kick off to the specifics, can you briefly tell us the conceptual basis of contributory negligence? Thanks, James. Uh, Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Now, contributory negligence is a well-established concept under the common law and also enshrined in legislation. Uh, For those of you who are interested in reading the legislation, it's dealt with in Section 5R of the Civil Liability Act, Section 138 of the Motor Accidents Compensation Act, and Section 4.17 of the newly enacted Motor Accidents Injuries Act 2017. Contributory negligence basically is the failure by a person to take reasonable care for his or her own safety, which contributes to the harm the person suffers. The legislation apportions blame between the parties by looking at what is just and equitable in the circumstances. Uh, courts use the Podrobosek test, which was a High Court decision from 1985, to decide what is just and equitable. The High Court said in Podrobosek that when making the apportionment between the plaintiff and defendant, you compare both the culpability of the party and the relative importance of the party's act in causing the damage. Right. Well, I mean, might be a bit of a cliche amongst us lawyers, but um, sounds like every assessment depends on the circumstances and facts of the case. Yeah, it sounds complicated, but it's not an impossible exercise. You, mm. To accurately assess contributory negligence, it's important to glean from decisions by the courts with similar factual scenarios. I would definitely agree with that. So today, we'll be talking through some examples for our listeners on two categories where contributory negligence is particularly interesting for us. The first is accidents involving bicycles, and secondly, blameless accidents. Yeah, it's important to start any conversation about contributory negligence with, especially in respect of pedestrian and bicycle accidents, with Cosimetis, uh, TNX Company, and uh, Nominal Defendant and Ross. But these cases involve, they would you know, justify their own podcast in themselves. So mm. just briefly, essentially, in pedestrian and bicycle cases, the court compares the respective carelessness of the parties And the potential for harm is an irrelevant consideration. So, you know, as a cyclist myself, I think that's a bit harsh because a driver's actions could kill me, Mm. whereas Mm. my actions as a cyclist on the road, I'm hardly going to cause death to a driver. Mm. Mm. Well, I guess it's a bit of a policy decision the court has made. It's basically saying as a bicycle rider, you should be a lot more responsible for how you behave on the road because it can lead to your own death. Yeah, 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 yeah. that makes sense. I I totally agree. I think... um, like I ride to work every day mm. and I remain particularly vigilant on the road. I don't mm. filter through traffic. I just stay behind the vehicle in mm. front of me. Mm. I, I do my best. I stay in bike lanes wherever they're available. Mm. 
But for this conversation, we should probably start with Cheng and Gusens, which is a court of appeal decision from 2014. Mm-hmm. This is a classic scenario of a bike going through an intersection and a car going through an intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, the court couldn't determine who had the green light, so they just made the assessment of contributory negligence on the basis that neither had a green light. Mm. So three important things to consider in this decision. One, the defendant moved closer to the curb. Yeah. Two, if the defendant had kept a proper lookout and seen the bicycle, he could have stayed closer to the centre of the road and avoided a collision. Yep. Uh, and the third thing to consider that if the biker rider had looked to his right, he would have seen the defendant's car and would have been able to stop in time to avoid a collision. Mm. Justice of Appeal Baston said this is verbatim on these facts there might be something to be said for an equal apportionment of responsibility. However, one factor favours the driver, namely that at the point at which each should have seen the other, the plaintiff was on the footpath and could have been expected not to commence to cross in front of a travelling vehicle, whereas the vehicle who was travelling at speed, it should have been evident to the plaintiff that the vehicle was not about to stop. Mm, mm. Uh, Justice of Ward agreed with Basson's apportionment that the plaintiff bicycle rider should be apportioned 67% of the blame and the defendant driver should be apportioned 33% of the blame. Very interesting numbers, two-thirds to a third, I guess. Well, so, I mean, basically it seems the judge in that case found that the bike rider was a lot more negligent than defendant who was driving the car because the bike rider could have stopped or could have stayed on the footpath, whereas it was a lot more unreasonable to expect the defendant car to stop given its speed and its mass and that sort of thing. I mean, having never ridden bicycles myself, I must say I would agree with that judge's assessment there because it's very difficult to sometimes deal with quickly manoeuvring bicycle riders on the road. Now, what would you say about that as being a frequent rider yourself? Well, I agree with the judge's decision because it's just common sense, you know. If a, a car's moving towards you at speed and you know it's not going to stop, well, you know, it's, you can't expect it to just suddenly stop and walking out in front of it's not going to cause you harm. Mm. So I agree with the judge's decision. Mm. I've been hit myself, not in circumstances such as this, but I was just driving alongside the car going down Williams Street and coming up to an intersection. I was right alongside the side of the car and uh, they must not have checked their blind spot because then they just started turning left and... Over I go, over the bonnet. (laughs) You didn't get hurt. Um, Yeah, luckily I didn't get hurt. It's very um, lucky. Yeah, so, but yeah, you know, it happens. Accidents happen. That's right, that's right. We've got to be more careful next time, hopefully. (laughs) Avoid some accidents. I mean... Hopefully there is no next time. Oh, yeah, that's it. Um, Look, uh, that's why it's primarily the reason why I stay away from bike riding on the road. But um, I suppose being involved in those sorts of similar scenarios, but very lucky not to have been injured. You may have some very interesting cases that you've been working at, um, McCabe Kerwood, and that you might be attached to, I suppose. You know, we've had a couple of interesting bicycle cases, but probably the most common bicycle v motor vehicle Mm. scenario is where the bicycle riders driving along or riding along, Mm. and then the car suddenly emerges from a driveway Mm. or from behind some parked vehicles. Nettleton and Rondell, a Supreme Court decision from 2014, had these facts. You know, the plaintiff was riding down Lauderdale Road in Fairlight and the defendant driver just suddenly emerged from behind some parked cars exiting Mm. her driveway. Unfortunately for the plaintiff in this circumstance, the injuries were, you know, paraplegia. So she or he was um, quite severely injured. Mm. 
Interesting, though, the split of contributory negligence or apportionment was 75% to the defendant driver and 25% to the injured plaintiff. Totally opposite to the previous fact scenario. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of interesting points to note. First, the plaintiff was riding on the road when there was a bike lane available. And, you know, naturally you sort of think that if there's a bike lane available, the cyclist should be in the bike lane. That's right. Yeah, but um, the evidence was led that there was more hazards associated with the use of the bike lane and the judge accepted that. Um, it's a busy road, Lord Al. It's where they do mm. the manly to spit walk. So maybe that was why it was more dangerous associated with it. Mm. Another interesting point, uh, which would be humorous if, you know, the plaintiff hadn't suffered such significant injuries, is that evidence was led that the plaintiff was actually checking out a couple of girls and was not keeping a proper lookout, you know, not. And so, you know, ogling these girls would have meant a delay in braking and potentially a delay in swerving to avoid the defendant's car. Mm. Well, I mean, I can see why the judges wouldn't have been impressed with that. But I guess uh, could you tell us a bit more in detail as to why the defendant was found more responsible? Well, in this one, there was uh, the defendant had lived at that address for three years or something. They were very familiar with the driveway. They were familiar mm. with the fact that they couldn't see oncoming vehicles or bikes mm. uh, when they were exiting the driveway. Uh, they also knew that there was an alternative route outside, out of the premises, and they decided not to use that alternative route. That alternative route was a lot more safe. Yeah, so they could right. see the other cars coming. Right, right. I mean, so what are your thoughts on that? In this particular circumstance, I sort of think of common sense. I think if you're a rider going down the road and it's a steep road, Lauderdale Road, in some parts, I don't know exactly where this accident happened, but you've got to expect that somebody might, you know, poke their bonnet out as they were exiting a driveway or, like, you know, you've got to expect that. So I thought it would have been closer to 50-50 or even more apportioned mm. towards the plaintiff, so I'm surprised mm. by the decision. Mm. I would personally would have to agree. And what I find very interesting is that the alternative route itself was considered at all by the judge in assessing contributory negligence, which to me begs the question of how far can judges go in considering extraneous factors in assessing contributory negligence? I, mean, I guess that's a, that's a question which would have to be determined on the facts of each case once again. What's interesting is that the plaintiff pled blameless accident in the alternative. Right. Which I guess brings us to the second topic of a podcast about assessing contributory negligence and blameless accidents. I mean, you said that before that in pedestrian and bicycle accidents, the court compares respective carelessness and the potential for harm of their actions is irrelevant. Now, that, of course, would apply to blameless accidents too. But the problem is there is no other party to compare the actions to. So naturally, I would say that contributory negligence would be assessed higher. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's actually a great way to explain it because if there's no other fault to compare and apportion blame, you know, mm. it would just come out naturally that mm. the plaintiff had a higher contributory negligence component. Mm. We should say at this point that if any of the listeners have not listened to Laura De La Santri's podcast on blameless accidents from two weeks ago, they should definitely go back and check that out because Laura has had a lot of single-vehicle motor vehicle accidents, which are blameless, and mm. she's had some great results recently, including the matter of Galuzzo. Mm. So go check that out if you haven't already done so. Let's go back to how the blameless accident provisions were dealt with in Nettleton and Rondell. Uh, yeah, so as I said, um, they pled blameless accident in the alternative. Uh, since primary liability was established, it wasn't you know carefully considered, but His Honour did say uh, that 
blameless accident provisions would actually apply in the circumstances if the defendant was not found at fault. Right. I mean, I guess we can't talk about blameless accidents without talking about the case of Axiac, where the pedestrian plaintiff was found to be not an any other person for the purposes of Section 7A because any contribution to the cause of the accident by the pedestrian plaintiff constituted contributory negligence rather than tortious conduct. Now, I don't think that the, a court would interpret that in, in the same way for bicycles, but uh, my, I've researched a couple of cases which led me to believe that this is an open-ended question yet to be determined by the Court of Appeal. Well, yeah, Nettleton and Rundell was a Supreme Court decision. Uh, His Honour Chief Justice Hoban found that the accident, even though it was a cyclist and not a pedestrian, would have been a blameless accident if there was no fault of the driver. Right. The defendant actually tried to blame a parked car in a way to find fault of, in you know, open quote, any other person, close mm. quote. But the judge wasn't satisfied with that. He thought, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for the person to park in the spot that they did because it was an allocated parking spot. Mm. Mm. Did his honour talk about how the principle in Axiac applied at all? Oh, yeah, he found that Axiac applied similarly to bicycle riders as pedestrians. Oh, interesting. Wow. Which I guess leads us to the interesting question, I guess, on whether a court can, court has or can ever find 100% contributory negligence. Now, according to Section 5S of the Civil Liability Act, this is clearly possible and, in fact, more probable, in my view, for blameless accidents. Well, yeah, in Davis and Swift, uh, which was a blameless accident case, the trial judge made a finding of 100% contributory negligence. Uh, but on appeal, this was overturned, apportioned or 80% 20. Right, right. Well, I guess I, I should give our listeners some facts of Davis and Swift at this point. Um, that case involved a pedestrian who stepped backwards from the middle of the road into the path of an oncoming defendant vehicle that was pulling away from the parking lane. Now, the reason why assessment of contributory negligence was overturned on appeal was because the court didn't consider this sort of act or conduct as an example of a worst possible case scenario. According to this case, or the judges in this case, 100% contributory negligence would require not only for the accident to be blameless, but it would need to have a whole host of other factors, such as alcohol, drugs, middle of the night in a deserted road, without street lights, without reflective clothes. And importantly, the court has to find that the plaintiff made a conscious decision to place him or herself in a position of danger, a gross departure from the standard of care required for most people. Well, very interesting. Uh, that's it for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to download a copy of McCabe Kerwood's Mostly at Fault Guidelines, which shows a one-page summary of circumstances where greater than 61% of contributory negligence is arguable. Yeah, and it's important to have a look at those because in circumstances where the injured person is mostly at fault, which is, you know, contributory negligence of greater than 61%, statutory benefits cease up to six months, so it's important to know that sort of stuff. That's right, that's right. Thanks, Eden. Now, we've left the link below for those guidelines and also McCabe Kerwood's contributory negligence summaries, which will give you a quick reference point to different contributory negligence assessments by the courts, which are put into specific categories of fact scenarios for your benefit. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.